Hello, this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the concept of grace, and uh, not so much so in the life of David receiving grace, but David actually giving grace. And uh, I love I love the definition of grace that we actually find from Webster. So this isn't Nate's made-up definition like I like to give you a lot of the times. This is straight from the source, the guy that wrote the book, like Webster. Um, he says this, that he defines grace as undeserved divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration and sanctification. I mean, that's a good definition, friends. Grace is something that you can't earn. It's undeserved, right? That means that you, you don't deserve it. And it's a gift that is given to humans for their regeneration and sanctification. That comes straight from Webster's Dictionary. I think that's pretty good. And uh, I want us to have that kind of at the forefront of our minds as we talk about this guy named Mephibosheth today. And so... Before we turn to his story, I want to read to you from Titus 3. Uh, Beginning in verse 3, it says, Once we too were foolish and disobedient. Some of us still are. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. I love verse 4. It says, but, and then there's a hyphen. I love it when, I love that. And he says, but. When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, right? Because of his his willingness not to give us what we did deserve. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And because of his grace... He made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that it's alive. And Lord, I thank you that you're speaking through it this morning. And we're asking that our hearts would come into alignment, Lord, that they would be open to your speaking and to your working. Lord, let every heart be captivated by your goodness this morning. Lord, not man's ideas, not just good words, not just good thoughts, but Lord, we're asking that your spirit would apprehend us, that your word would change us, and that you would receive glory in Jesus' name. Amen. And I believe, uh, I believe as we talk about grace this morning, and as we've kind of been walking through the life of David, we see him, uh, we see him in a story in 2 Samuel chapter 9, really, uh, really exhibit this, uh, this notion of grace in the Old Testament, which we've been talking about foreshadowing our relationship with Christ. Amen? So I know we sang the song, and I gave a little brief talk about it. Uh, during worship, but we're going to jump into the scripture here 
and see what God has to say. Amen? So beginning in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? If you guys remember uh, back in 1 Samuel um, chapter 18, where Saul and, uh, not Saul, Saul's getting ready to try to kill David, but Jonathan and David, Jonathan was Saul's son, they make a pact between one another that they would show kindness to each other and to each other's families as long as they would live. Um, and so this is David making good on that promise. Um, this is, uh, so Jonathan has died, Saul has died, and this is David after he becomes king asking this question, is there anyone to Saul's family that I could show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Because he, he made a solemn commitment, a covenant with Jonathan back in 1 Samuel. He says, And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. I, I just want somebody to say that to me one day. So the next, the, next time, uh, the next time I come into the office, Tyler, can you just say, At your service? Can you respond with that? That'd make me feel better about myself. I'm just kidding. <laughs> And Ziba said to the king, There is still the son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And the, Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. And King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Emil, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, and will restore to you and all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog such as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given you your master's son. I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all of his house. And therefore, you therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so your servant will do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both of his feet." It's a pretty interesting story here. you got to remember some of the cultural context. Uh, Saul and David weren't best of buds, though David always uh, sought to honor Saul. And that's where this covenant comes about between David and Jonathan. Uh, back in 1 Samuel chapter 18, he makes a promise to show kindness to his household. Um, and we see uh, David and Jonathan fall at the hands of the Philistines, right? And uh, uh, in battle, and David eventually becomes king, takes Jerusalem, sets up his home there, and then he, 
he, he begins as, he, as his kingdom settles down. He's, he sets into rule over Jerusalem, over Judah, over Israel. Uh, he begins to remember this promise that he had made to Jonathan, that he would show kindness to his children and to his house. And so a common practice of that day, I mentioned it earlier, was that if you were the new king and you took the throne, you would kill off anyone and everyone who would have any kind of birthright to that throne. And so you have to understand, Saul, uh, his son Jonathan, had the right to the throne. And we saw that beautiful exchange where Jonathan gives his robe to David, essentially recognizing that God has taken the kingdom from his father and given it to David. But from a, from a legal perspective, that's how monarchies work, Jonathan was heir to the throne. And uh, after him, his sons would be, uh, have a birthright to claim the throne. And so that's what we see here with Mephibosheth. Even though he was crippled, even though we see these things that were wrong with him, he had a birthright to the throne of Israel. And uh, so uh, imagine what might be going through your mind when the king of Israel calls you uh, to, to, um, to his palace. And that's, that's why it says that he was filled with fear. He, he most likely thought that he was meeting his fate and his demise and his destruction because his time had come to an end. Because that was, that was cultural practice of the day. Yet he's shown kindness. And I just, I love this story. But I want to I begin by kind of breaking down this story into three different parts. Or actually, I, I changed my notes, so it's five different parts. Um, don't want to lie to you guys. But the first thing that I notice about the story is the dysfunction. Before we learn Mephibosheth's name, before we learn anything else about him, this passage of scripture first identifies him by his dysfunction. Identifies him as a cripple. Identifies him as lame in both feet. When we see in verse 3, the king asks, Is there still someone here from the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness? Ziba says to the king, There is still the son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And uh, I just think that's interesting to note that before anything else, before we learn his name, we immediately find out what's wrong with him. And before we even find out his name after that, we don't find out his name till uh, quite a bit later, we learn that he's living in a place called Lodabar. We discover his name and we discover his location, uh, or we discover his dysfunction. We discover uh, the fact that he's lame. We discover the fact that he's living in a place called Lodabar long before we discover that he actually even has a name. And when we actually first are introduced to the character of Mephibosheth, it happens in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. It's the exact same way that we're introduced to this character. Um, we are we are first introduced to the fact that he was a son of Jonathan that was lame and crippled before we learn his name. I just think it's quite interesting um, to me that we're introduced to his dysfunction before his identity. And I think that's something that's true of a lot of people today. We immediately notice what's wrong with them before we ever actually get to know them. And I think that that's true for a lot of people in the church. I think that's true for um, most of us if we think about it. Uh, it's always glaringly easier to find out somebody's faults than figure out their story. 
And I think that's kind of a, an example that we see here in the life of Mephibosheth. And uh, I think it's interesting that we see him living in a place called Lodabar. And I like to study names. I like to kind of figure out if there's, if there's meanings associated with a place because, you know, they didn't just come up with names based upon the fact that they really liked the name. Names had a cultural meaning. And the fact here was that Lodabar actually means a land without pasture, barren of fruit. <laughs> That's, I mean, I'm not making that up. That comes straight from like the biblical dictionary. That's what Lodabar means is the fact that it is a land that is, uh, it's a land without pasture, barren of fruit. And I thought, as I was seeking the Lord a number of years ago, as I was studying this passage of Scripture and studying this story, the Lord spoke to me and gave me uh, insight on how this is a picture of the vast maturity of the church today that, that should be walking victoriously in the power of the Holy Spirit, triumphantly, rather we're living crippled by shame in a dry and barren land unable to produce fruit. You see, there should have been royalty <laughs> that was existing uh, in, uh, in Mephibosheth's life. I wrote this, that where there should be royalty, we have men and women who can't walk right, living crippled by shame, identified by our dysfunction, rather than the God that frees us and delivers us in a dry and barren land unable to produce fruit. This was the state of Mephibosheth before there was a divine intervention. Before David chose to show the kindness of God to him. Mephibosheth was orphaned, he was impoverished, he was crippled, he was stripped of his right to the throne, and he was living in a barren and fruitless land. It's a pretty hopeless situation. And I, I believe that there are a lot of people that have knowledge of Jesus, that have knowledge of what God has called them to, that have a birthright because of their relate of at one point in time uh, experiencing covenant and relationship with God, they were called a priest and a king, but they're living in a dry and fruitless place. They're crippled by shame and unable to produce fruit. I want to talk to you about the incidents that occurred that set Mephibosheth up for living in this dry and fruitful place. Fruitless place. <laughs> dry and fruitful, that would be weird. <laughs> dry and fruitless place. You see, if we read about it, we read about this incident in 2 Samuel chapter 4. And it was after Saul and Jonathan had died. They had fallen in battle. And so immediately, um, I'm, I'm just going to read this. He says, Jonathan, Saul's son, 
um, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came to Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Again, we see he's identified first by the fact that he's crippled, first by the fact that he's lame, not by the fact that he actually has a name and an identity that his father gave him. I think that's, I just think that's interesting to note, but we see in a response to fear, the very person that was supposed to be caring for this young boy winds up running and in her haste to flee, in her haste to run, yeah, she's, she's afraid that because Saul and Jonathan have just died, they've just died in battle, that David is going to come with his men and annihilate any claim to the throne, right? She's operating in fear. And so she, she thinks, I'm going to take care of this boy, and we're going to run, and we're going to run to safety. And in the midst of picking him up and, and, and running in the hustle and the bustle, something happens. She trips, and the boy falls. And as a result of that fall, he loses his ability to walk. And he's crippled. And I, I, believe, it's a picture, I believe it's a picture of people that have, have experiencing just the, the crippling, um, Holy Spirit. I believe it's a picture here of men and women that trusted themselves to someone that was supposed to take care of them, that let them down. And I want to be the first one to let you know, to apologize to you. That if you have been living with shame, if you have been living with some kind of just kind of weight in your life because somebody that you were supposed to be able to trust lets you down, drops you, that there's grace this morning to get over it. There's grace to live free from that. I'm talking about maybe it was a pastor. You know, maybe it was the church, maybe it was a family member, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was somebody you placed a lot of trust in, and they fell. And as a result, it hurts you. And it crippled you. And you've got this shame, you've got this way. I, I don't know the details, but I do know that there's grace this morning from the heart of Jesus to use that as part of your story to rework history. I've noticed that people often get hurt when we operate in fear. When we make decisions based upon just uh, looking at the circumstances and looking at the situation rather than seeking and leaning and trusting in the Lord. I, I know this one from a place of leadership. I have hurt people based on decisions that I've made when operating out of fear rather than trusting God. Those are things that I have to deal and struggle and walk with the Lord on because they're decisions as a leader that I've made that, that I, don't, I don't get to just kind of say, sorry, God, and walk away from. They have lasting repercussions. And I know that we've been talking and looking at David, and when he's walking in faith, man, he's killing it. But when he's walking in fear and making decisions based upon just circumstance rather than seeking the Lord, people get hurt and people die. <laughs> and in this situation here, just with this nurse that I read, 
It's imperative, friends, that we don't make haste decisions out of fear because people can get hurt as a result. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me there? So that was the incident that I wanted to talk to you about. But it gets, it's, it, friends, this gets good because I can't, like, I can't make this up. Like, this is, like, I couldn't, like, just read it. I, I've heard preachers that have, like, some very loose definitions of terms in the Bible. And, like, you'll, you'll, you'll hear, like, you'll hear, like, uh, I heard this one preacher talk about the names in the Bible. And I went to go study it for myself and thinking, like, man, that's a stretch when I actually look them up. Friends, I, I couldn't make these up. You, you turn to any legitimate biblical lexicon or dictionary, and you will find these definitions word for word that I'm about to share with you. It's so good. Um, like I said, I talked about names having meaning, names having some kind of connotation with them. And I love the fact as, as we're reading through this story, as we're kind of walking through it, um, we always see uh, Mephibosheth defined first as a cripple, right? His identity is wrapped up in this fact that he's lame in both of his feet. And it, it always comes secondary, or it always comes, it always comes primarily before his secondary identity, which is his name, right? Mephibosheth. Do you guys have any idea what the name Mephibosheth actually means? It's cool. <laughs> when you look up Mephibosheth and you look up the actual meaning of his name, it means exterminator of shame. Exterminator. I mean, just like, that sounds, that sounds intense, right? Like when you name your boy Mephibosheth, I'm, I'm not recommending that right now, but back then when you were naming your kid Mephibosheth, you were saying, son, you're going to annihilate shame and rip it off the face of the earth. Like that's... That's some business, right? <laughs> but when the picture that we see of Mephib, my boy Mephib, um, guys, it's a hard name to pronounce, okay? I'm just saying. <laughs> but when we, when we encounter him, it's, he's living in stark contrast to his namesake, is he not? Right? He's living basically in hiding. He's impoverished, he's orphaned, he's living in this fruitless land. He doesn't have anything to kind of make for himself. He's, he's living entirely as a cripple. He's got to be brought before the king. There's a lot of shame that exists in this man. There's a lot of shame wrapped up in his identity. You see, he's identified, rather, he's identified first by his dysfunction rather than the name that his father gave him. And I, friends, I believe that we can far too often give more attention to the things that are wrong with us rather than finding the identity that God has called us to in Christ Jesus. We can give way too much attention to what's wrong rather than to the one who is right. And I see this happening in Mephibosheth's life. You see, it's, it's something that I mean, we can kind of see it even in his words when, when King David asks to show him kindness. He responds, what am I but a dead dog that, the Lord would, that my king would show me kindness? He doesn't think very highly of himself. There's a difference between, um, there's a difference between like humility and shame. We understand that, right? It's good to be humble, but, but he's ashamed of who he is. 
calls himself a dead dog because of his dysfunction that he didn't have any control over, right? He, didn't make, he was five years old. He didn't make no decision to like, oh, I'm going to go do something stupid and now I'm crippled. He's living, he's living crippled. He's living, um, he's living inconvenienced because somebody else made a mistake. There were repercussions there. I, I just think it's interesting, friends, as we, as we walk through this. What we see, we see Mephibosheth being identified by his dysfunction rather than what the father sees. Rather than what the father named him as the exterminator of shame. He's living in, he's living in the exact opposite of it. You know, I, I talk about it a lot, but it makes me think of some other characters in the Bible, right? Like we think of the woman with the issue of blood. She doesn't have the issue of blood anymore because Jesus touched her, right? We think of blind Bartimaeus. <laughs> He's not blind anymore because Jesus touched him, right? We think of doubting Thomas. He's not doubting anymore because he encountered the risen Jesus. But there's something about human nature that we immediately want to throw the dysfunction out there and label people by their dysfunction. Label people about what was wrong with them, about what Jesus actually did in their life. And I think that, friends, I think that that can be a dangerous pitfall for us to fall into is that we too often look at somebody as they are, but the Lord sees potential in people beyond what we see in the temporary. And I love that kind of beautiful aspect of the Lord. We, we look at the restoration. We look at kind of the culmination of this story. And as a result of David's kindness... You see, all the rights of sonship and identity are restored unto Mephibosheth. He's seated again at the king's table. He's given back his father and his grandfather's lands, which were very fruitful. And it's very good for Mephibosheth, right? He winds up being seated at the table of the Lord. He's shown extraordinary kindness. And this is what I was talking about, the Old Testament foreshadowing of the life that we now have in Jesus, right? That you and I can walk in. I want to read Ephesians chapter 2 to you. Because just like Mephibosheth was seated with the king, I believe that we've been given an invitation to sit with him as well. You see, verse 2 says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God. I love these buts, like Paul's really good about it. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So we, hit, we see that mercy, right, being extended. That mercy, meaning that we deserved the wrath and punishment of God, but he didn't give it to us. By grace, by the gift of God, you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have an invitation to sit with him in heavenly places. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace 
in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not you by your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, crafted in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, that's good news. That's good news. We have an invitation to sit with him, not because of who we are, not because of our namesake, not because of our lineage, not because who our daddy was. (laughs) But because he wants to show grace to you. Just because he loves you. He made a way because he wanted you at his table. Mm Hmm. Every message I've ever heard or myself have ever preached on Mephibosheth always ends here. Always stops here. Because it's good. It's like a nice, neat little package, right? Oh, there was the cripple. He was broken. Uh, Somebody dropped him. Man, now he's bad. But look how good King David is, right? He's so nice. He says, let's show kindness. And brings him into the table and eats at the king's table, right? Good, right? If you go on to read the story of Mephibosheth, there's some interesting things that take place as you continue to read the story of 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, would you turn with me there? Some of you might need to click with me there. Got to wait for my Bible to load. <laughs> Sorry. I want to read in verse 1. It says, When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, What do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine are for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? He's asking, Where is Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Here all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. That's a pretty interesting passage of scripture that we read right there. I want to I kind of walk us through what's taking place um, if you're not familiar with what takes place uh, between 2 Samuel chapter 9 and 2 Samuel chapter 16. Event, uh, to sum it up very briefly, David's son Absalom usurps the throne and drives David, drives his father out of Jerusalem and crowns himself as king and there is great division that takes place in the house of Israel and once again David is on the run for his life and he's been driven from Jerusalem and he takes some of those that are faithful with him with him um, and the, the, the whole country is in an uproar and David has been expelled uh, he's been impeached basically as king uh, <laughs> and his son usurps the throne and uh, It's not a good time to be David. (laughs) 
David knows his sorrow. David knows his hardship. And to make it, uh, to just kind of put the dagger in his back a little bit deeper, it's his own son that is taking the throne from him. His son that he loves. And I mean, it is, it is, it's a bad deal all the way around. And we're going to talk a little bit more about all the intricacies of what's taking place in that story in Deeper Project. It's really, God, the Bible is cool. The Bible's exciting. You guys got to jump in with us. But that's what's taking place. And so David is on the run. David has fled Jerusalem for the time being with his men, while Absalom enjoys his heyday as king. He sets up a statue to himself because he doesn't have kids. It's, it's, it's an interesting story. But in the midst of this, Ziba leaves Jerusalem, comes to David while he's fleeing and saying that he's bringing all this gift because his master, Mephibosheth, has uh, changed his mind and has turned his loyalty away from the king. Pretty interesting, right? What a low blow, Mephibosheth, right? You wouldn't have nothing if it wasn't for David. Isn't that what you would think? Is that what you would say? Well, that's exactly actually what was taking place. You have to, if you're reading chronologically, you're reading this and thinking, wow, Mephibosheth's a jerk, right? He's an ungrateful little turd. That's how I would, that's how I would describe him. It's just like, come on, guy. But if you continue to read in 1 Samuel, 19, or 2 Samuel chapter 19, um, this is after Absalom, David's son, dies. Uh, David comes back to Jerusalem as king. He's heartbroken over the loss of his son. And he comes back to his people. He comes back before the elders. And he does something remarkable. He begins to forgive those that betrayed him. It's really, it's really powerful. It's really, we'll talk about some of that later when we're actually studying David once again. But I want to read to you just a, a quick, um, just the quick passage that we'll read in Second uh, Samuel nineteen twenty four. It says, Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king, and the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king, because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like an angel of God. Therefore do what is good in your eyes, for all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore what right have I still to carry out any more to the king, or to cry out any more to the king? So the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said... You and Ziba divide the land. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather, let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. This is a very interesting kind of exchange that takes place. So what we learn here from Mephibosheth's account is that he actually ordered Ziba more than likely, to gather up his donkey and gather these gifts to be brought to David. And Ziba saw an opportunity to use the calamity that was taking place around him for his own personal gain. 
and says, you know what, I'm going to go to David and tell him that my master, Mephibosheth, has been disloyal and has turned his back on him, and David's going to reward me greatly as a faithful servant. And right, David says, everything that Mephibosheth has, it's yours now, bro. (laughs) Forget that dead dog, right? When David shows back up, he asks, what happened? He can see, you see, Mephibosheth didn't care for himself. He didn't wash his clothes. He didn't trim his beard or his mustache. It actually says when he didn't dress his feet, it meant that he didn't wash them. He didn't clip his toenails, basically, for the entire time that the king was gone. It was something that uh, the cultural aspect of the day that you'd do in mourning if you had lost a loved one. And so that's what Mephibosheth was doing the entire time while King David was out of his throne, when King David was out of, the, out of the palace and out of ruling Jerusalem and out of ruling Israel from the place as being king. Does that make sense? And so when he shows up, there's, some, there's something peculiar about the situation that David notices. And Mephibosheth's response is so interesting to me because he doesn't go to defend himself. He, he tells the truth. He says what happens, right? But he says, King, I don't care whatever, do whatever is right in your eyes. You are like an angel of God. (laughs) I would have nothing if it wasn't for you. So if you take it all away, that's completely okay. That is his response because he understands that the grace that he's received, the gift that he's received, he didn't deserve it and he didn't earn it. He never had a right to be at the king's table in the first place, but yet he experienced it, and it made him grateful. And one of the things that I think, one of the things that I think I've noticed with with being a a Christian, I've not been a Christian that long. You know, I've been I've been serving Jesus for about the last 14 years. But in that 14 years, I've encountered a lot of people that are entitled. That they feel like God owes them something. You know what? I showed up to church. I put money in that offering plate. I even came to a prayer meeting. And they have this sense of entitlement that God owes them something. And then I've met some people, I've I've met some people that have been in some rough situations. That God has delivered them from much. And they're grateful every single time those church doors are open. And I, I just want to—I want to give you a word of caution, friends. Is that it is possible to grow accustomed? It's, it is possible to grow used to the king's presence. And I, I would just—I would encourage you to to not take it for granted. To not take him and his nearness for granted, friends. It's imperative that we don't, we don't let that, just the fact that he meets with us and that he wants to be near to us and that we can come in and we have this glorious opportunity week after week to come together as the family of God and know that he wants to speak and know that he wants to minister, know that he wants to meet with us and take it like he owes it to us. Because he doesn't. We've experienced the gift of grace We've experienced God in his mercy. It's something that we don't deserve. And I would 
I, I just pray that we would fight that spirit of entitlement. But then it goes on, and I, I don't necessarily understand David's response here. I, I can only chalk it up to the fact that he's not perfect, and he, he's not God. But he hears what transpires, and then rather than kind of going back on his word and saying, oh, well, take everything from Ziba, give it to you. He's like, uh, I have spoken in this matter. Ziba gets his half, and you get your half. And he splits it down the middle. And it, it, it almost reminds me, if you guys remember the story in uh, 1 Kings, where Solomon is having to, uh, the, the, the two women bring forth the baby to say, who, who are we going to eat? <laughs> and he says, cut the baby in half. <laughs> and they find out who the mother is, right? We see here the response of, uh, we see the response of Mephibosheth saying, no, just let him have it all. The only thing that I'm concerned about is that my king is back in peace and on the throne. What it speaks to me and what it shares to me that those of us that have experienced the kindness and the grace of God should have a preoccupation about his kingdom, have a preoccupation about his rule to the place where his blessing and his hand come secondary to the fact, is he receiving glory and is he in charge? I love what the Bible commentator Morgan says here. He says, for his own enrichment, this man cared nothing at all. It was everything to him that his king should come into the possession of his kingdom in peace. It is to be feared that too often we are more concerned about our rights than his. It is great, it is a great and glorious thing when our loyalty and love make us far more concerned about the victories of our Lord than about our own unquestioned rights. Yet that should be the normal attitude of all who sit at the king's table. Uh, when we were in ministry school, there was a saying that we adopted. We had it on t-shirts because we were cool. It said, dead men have no rights. We'd have, this, we'd have this gravestone here, and it said, here lies self. <laughs> did, your, did your class get those? Okay. Yeah, we were hardcore. We were metal. We were cool. But one of the things that was kind of drilled into us, those that if you die to yourself, you lose your rights. And I love here how... I just love the heart posture of Mephibosheth because he's experienced the grace of Lord, the grace of the Lord. He doesn't respond to King David saying, that's unfair, that's unjust. I was loyal to you. I've been in mourning. I've been crying for you. I haven't washed my feet or trimmed my beard or washed my clothes or taken a shower. Like, I loved you and I, I, was, I was done dirty. Even though, he, even though that was 100% true and that was right. His posture was that the only thing that really concerned him was that the king returned to his rightful place in peace. That his king was on the throne and had returned. <coughs> Friends, I want that kind of holy preoccupation. It makes me think about the little things that I bring up before the Lord a lot. Maybe they're not that big of a deal. God, are you in control? Are you on the throne? That would be my prayer for us, friends. That we would have the heart posture of Mephibosheth. 
that after experiencing the grace and the goodness of God, that we're not who we used to be, that we're not identified by our shame and dysfunction anymore, but we're called as children of the living God, rooted in a new identity, seated at his table. There's freedom, there's a release in understanding that, but that we wouldn't grow accustomed to living in that place and entitled in the sense and you know what? I've been around the king's table for the last 34 years. It's mine now. I want to continually live humbly before the king, understanding that I have no business being here. I have no, I have no business at all to experience his kindness. My rap sheet that I have should disqualify me from ever being used by God. But in his kindness and his goodness, he wants to demonstrate mercy. He wants to give grace. And in doing so, friends, there's this extraordinary release that takes place in my heart that I just want to know that the king is in charge. The king is on his throne. I want to have a holy preoccupation about being about the king's business. More so than I'm interested in making sure that, you know, my family and I were living the American dream and we've got money in retirement, which we don't, <laughs> or health insurance, which we don't, or, <laughs> or, you know, we want to make sure this church pays the bills or all this crazy stuff that could preoccupy us. Friends, I want to be about the kingdom. I want to know that the word and the glory of God is going forth in power. I want to have that kind of holy preoccupation, friends. And I believe that comes from a place of recognizing that I'm in the spot that I'm in. I'm being used by God because I'm experiencing the abundance of his grace in a measure that I don't deserve. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.